Welcome to the Dr. Lori Marvis podcast. Today, I am beyond honored to have Dr. T. Colin Campbell, who's Professor of Emeritus of Nutritional Biochemistry at Cornell University, also the founder of the Plant-Based Nutrition cert- Certificate, Certificate. Excuse me, um, that, that was actually one of the first things I did when I transitioned my own diet and was trying to learn how to do this as a physician and helping patients. Um, he's the author of over 300 research papers, co-author of the China Study, Whole, the Low-Carb Fraud, and just one of the lead scientists of the China Project, which we really want to talk about. Um, how are you doing today, Dr. Campbell? Good, great. Great. Especially today with the sun here. We haven't had sun here too much this where, year. Oh, where are you located right now? Upstate New York at Cornell, okay. right just outside the city. Wonderful. Yeah, you guys had a, a really interesting winter for sure. Well, not much snow. It's been a cold spring, wet, mm. so forth. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious if you could just, you know, most of my uh, listeners are familiar with the plant-based diet. And, you know, I've interviewed other physicians who um, also do this. Um, I'm interviewing Dr. Esselstyn soon, Dr. Bernard and everybody. But I'm curious, can you give us a little background about the China study? And I, I know it's a very long history. Um, but I, I had asked some folks, you know, on Facebook, if they could give me some ideas of what they would like to know from you. They're familiar with your work. But many of them asked, you know, about the China study and some of the critics that they um, asking about the China study. And they, they are talking about the paleo diet and stuff. If you can just give us an overlay of how you came about to the the China study and what you feel the critics that they have, what we can say to those critics um, to calm down the conversation, because that seems to be a common question. Well, that's a, a question that I have to uh, of about, uh, well, I won't say, yeah, it's been more than 60 years uh, since I started my research career, counting my graduate work. But uh, all of my interest was on diet and health all during that entire time. And I started out at a place where it's different than I am now. Uh, I was from a dairy farm. I believed in the good American diet. I, I went to graduate school and did a dissertation on, you know, trying to prove that point, if you will. The more protein, the better, especially high-quality protein is from animal sources. Uh, but then I got involved uh, in, after finishing my graduate work uh, at Virginia Tech, first at MIT, then Virginia Tech. And while at Virginia Tech, I had an opportunity to join my senior colleague. Uh, I was on a fa- I was a professor at Virginia Tech, but I enjoyed I joined my um, the, my senior colleague uh, in a project in the Philippines uh, under the State Department. And what our charge was was to see if we couldn't help that country, specifically the Department of Health, uh, in uh, some of the is trying to re- help them resolve the malnutrition problem in their children. And uh, I went there, my colleague and I did, to make sure they got enough protein, like we do in the West. Mm-hmm. That's where I started, basically. So it was all about protein, from my personal profession, whatever. But then I saw something that was rather odd. Uh, the few families who are consuming the most protein seem to be having the children who are more susceptible to getting a certain kind of cancer namely liver cancer, uh, then that was not quite believable. Uh, then there was a report from India, experimental animal study, uh, showing the same thing, that when protein is increased experimentally, let's say in an animal study where they're exposed to a carcinogen that gives rise to liver cancer, when that kind of study is done, 
higher protein, more cancer, very simply. Uh, so the two ideas together, my observations, you know, in the Philippines, plus the observa- that report from India, I said it's time to do some research on this because we're going to Philippines to, make, to advance the cause of protein consumption. And here we're seeing something virtually the opposite. So I got a grant from NIH that lasted for the next 27 years. I like to brag about that because these grants don't, they're usually for three years, maybe five. Uh, and I went back and kept getting repeat, repetitively renewal of that grant. And it's a pretty tough process to get that. But in any case, I, I had it for a long time. Uh, but it gave us a chance to really look at the sort of basic uh, biochemistry of cancer formation, as well as the basic, some of the basic information about what we thought, is, thought, what we thought was nutrition, especially protein nutrition. We got into, into that. I did a whole lot of work, or I should say we did. I had a lot of students and colleagues who worked with me, and we published a lot of papers. And what, what we learned was that experimentally, yes, Animal protein increases cancer growth rate. And if that is stark enough, it was for me, certainly, I wanted to know how it worked at a biochemical level. So we started looking at what we call mechanisms to explain this effect. And just put it all in a nutshell, uh, especially for one 12 or 13 year period, every time we looked for the explanatory mechanism, we found one. It was really odd because... You know, the presumption of cause and effect relationships in medicine is that if, you, if, you, if you're talking about some particular kind of cause, having some kind of effect, maybe on some specific disease, if we can know what the mechanism is, which, what enzyme is involved, or what this or what that, then you see this is a foundation for the entire pharmaceutical industry, I have to tell you. If we can understand what the mechanism is, then in theory, we might find a chemical, we'll call it a drug, that can block that. That is, in fact, this is a very important observation because that's the current system where we're attempting to rely on drugs as a means of creating health and prevent disease. So when I saw this over the years, it was different. It was not something about one mechanism. It was a whole host of mechanisms all working together. It's a concept I call holism with a W. And uh, as opposed to what is generally practiced, you know, in the medical community. And when I say medical community, I'm talking about my community too, medical research, as well as medical practice. And so uh, it was a very different story, but a very exciting one. Because what ended up at the end of the day was that, oh, we're discovering something about nutrition is not exactly what I have been teaching and my colleagues have been teaching. You know, when we teach nutrition, we talk about one nutrient at a time and what mechanism is involved, maybe there's more, you know, and what, what effect does it have? That's, what we, that's the way we learn things and talk about things. Unfortunately, that's not the correct version of a nutrition. In reality, nutrition doesn't work that way. That's the way presumably nutrient supplements might work, but they don't work. Now we know they really don't work. So there's something more to the story, if I may say so, something much larger. And it really has to do with all the nutrients working together. And so we did, then with that idea coming into view, I had a chance to work in China with a human population. Then to, and this was the first project, research project project between the United States and Canada, uh, China actually. It was very exciting. We, we went to China with my colleague, my Chinese colleague who was here with me at the time. We, we went to China to see why it was a cancer 
was so common in certain counties and not in others. There's a fantastic difference between high-rate regions and low-rate regions. And it was, it was a perfect setting, in a way, to check out what we were learning in the laboratory. I was learning a lot in the laboratory, I thought. But then I wanted to see, well, let's see, let's go to human population. And there, uh, we set up the program uh, in collaboration with uh, fantastic colleagues at the University of Oxford in England, uh, together with a college in China and Cornell. We were the directors. And so it was, a, it was a combined study to go to China, collect all kinds of information from a sample of villages, a total of 65, uh, I mean, a total of uh, 65 counties, two villages in every county. So we had 130 villages. We went to those villages. I, I use that, we, uh, that word, we, as a little cautiously, because it was really my Chinese colleagues that set it all up and did a beautiful job. And so we collected blood samples and urine samples and food samples. Uh, we were given information on all the diseases, not just cancer. Mm. The Chinese, we did questionnaires. So we collected a massive amount of information. And my thought was at the time was that with my, with my uh, alternate view of nutrition in a sense, I wanted to see are there combinations of nutrition that might tell us something. Because it's very clear from a biochemical point of view, nutrients work together. Mm-hmm. They don't work alone. They, they can work alone, but that's not, that's not the way it is. And so uh, this is an opportunity to really, the only place in the world we could have done this. Because there, the differences in cancer rates were so huge, and other diseases too, actually. And with all this information, we ended up with what is regarded as the most comprehensive study uh, ever done in the history of medicine. It was, it, I mean, I had fantastic colleagues, and it, it, it basically involved not just uh, Cornell and Oxford and, and the Chinese academies, but it actually involved a total of 24 different laboratories around the world. So it became four different countries. And so it became a very exciting project. And at the end of the day, when we did the survey in 1983-84, then we assembled all the massive undertaking, I should say, uh, mostly under the guidance of my colleagues at Oxford, where I spent some time myself. We assembled all the data, came out with a big, huge book. You know what? I, I think I'm, well, this is Skype. You don't need to see it. But the book is much bigger than the China study itself, by the way. But, but in any case, it's a huge, big monograph, uh, about 896 pages, and just packed with, with data. So from that, uh, we started looking at the information and seeing it essentially did it coincide with what we see in the laboratory? Did it coincide with what the Indian workers have done many, many years ago? Did it coincide with my impressions of what I saw in the Philippines? Mm. Yes, it did. Mm. But in order to understand that, you really have to analyze data in a very comprehensive way. You can't just sort of selectively pick out one variable and one outcome and things like this. I'll come back to that point in a moment. Because you can't take these kinds of studies uh, involved in lots of correlations and infer causation. You can't go from correlation to causation. So uh, the way you get to causation is considering other kinds of studies, like we had done in the laboratory, for example. In any case, we assembled all this information. And from looking at it from that perspective, in a much broader perspective, then it was clear that as soon as animal protein sort of begins to enter the diet, and not just in the China study, by the way, because they didn't consume that much animal protein there. But in any case, when considered in the context of the 
mechanism studies, and especially considering the context of other epidemiological studies that have been done by other researchers. We put all that together. As soon as animal protein starts to increase in the diet, let's say from a theoretical zero, as soon as you start putting that up, you know, it's almost a straight line relationship with breast cancer, with heart disease, and things like this. Amazing. Those studies, uh, the one I just mentioned, was shown uh, early on in the 1970s and 1980s and so forth. Uh, they were never taken too seriously because uh, researchers wanted to wanted to know, well, that doesn't show very much. You see this impressive correlation, but it might not be animal protein. Maybe it's, maybe it's telephone poles because the, the areas that consume more animal protein are richer and they have telephone poles. You see how silly this can become? So you can't, you can't do that really. And uh, in any case, uh, we started looking at the data just comprehensively, and sure enough, animal protein, two things happen. As soon as we start adding animal protein, animal food, basically, as soon as we start animal, uh, adding animal food to the diet, we have problems with the protein itself, which can be very serious, lots and lots of mechanisms, all kinds of disease outcomes. That's number one. Number two, maybe equally or more important even, and that is as soon as we start putting animal food in our diet, we start decreasing the consumption of the foods that matter. Mm-hmm. Plant-based foods. So, you know, it's a combination of the two. And, and researchers don't look at it that way, I have to tell you, or very seldom. And so all of a sudden, this comes into view, you know, mechanistically, the China study. And, and so um, my work actually came to the attention of the public, I think, primarily in 1990 when the New York Times did a cover story on our, on our uh, findings. And uh, so did Saturday, even the Post and USA Today. We got you know, front page stories in, in a lot of these places. And so it got a lot of attention. It also drew a lot of criticism. And the criticism I was already used to uh, from my prior experience working on national panels and, and giving testimony before con- congressional committees and stuff like that. I was familiar with it, with the criticism, but it was, it was intense. It was nasty. And uh, that was from 1990 until finally my wife told me, why don't you sit down and write a book, you know, and, and sort of see if you can write this down. So I did with my youngest son, who was actually a, uh, on stage in Chicago. He's a good writer and he was a theater major, but he was a good writer. And so he, he, was, a, he was a great addition to all of this, and uh, and then he decided, he got so excited, but he decided to go back to med school. Got his medical degree, and now he's a director of a really interesting program on nutrition medicine at a major medical school, so it's very exciting. So all, all of this comes, I'm sorry for this long story, but oh, that's... I love it, thank you. In, this, in, in a nutshell, and so, you know, the, the story obviously is very provocative. The findings are provocative, because what it says is, I'd like to say the positive side, eat plant-based foods, the whole plant-based foods. Nutrient supplements is not it. It doesn't work that way. Uh, It's the whole food. And number one. And number two, uh, don't add back a lot of the salt, sugar, and oil that we add to our diet. All that added stuff. That's not whole food. Especially the oils is problematic. It's uh, pro-inflammatory because it's mostly omega-6 fats. And so... Uh, this this story is obviously uh, very strongly opposed to what we now do. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, so when Tom and I finished up the book, The China Study, in 2005, I was even told by the publishers, that's not going to fly unless unless we change it. They didn't want to do it at first. They wanted me to to uh, put a lot of recipes in the book. I said, I don't even know where the pots and pans in the kitchen are, let alone write recipes. It wasn't about that. And so they they wanted uh, to you know, say, okay, we'll go with the book. And I, I actually turned down the first 11, all the bigger companies, and went with a small company who was really publishing house, which was just starting, and they, they were willing to take anything. And I was told that we wouldn't sell more than, the first estimate, we wouldn't sell more than two, 3,000 copies. You know, because they wanted me, they didn't want me to put, uh, the biggest deal was that they didn't want me to use references in my book. Because people wrote these kind of books and they never had references. I said, forget it. Yeah, I'm going to do that. So we then we went small publish. The book took off. Supposedly, maybe we get three, five, six thousand copies, eight thousand, something like that. Well, now it's approaching three million. And it's a 40, the 40, 40, last count, I think, I counted 48, but I think it's closer to about 42 foreign languages. So now it's becoming a huge story, end of story. That is incredible. And wow, thank you so much for that synopsis. I mean, that's just, it's a fabulous thing. And I will tell you, your book had such a impact on my ability to use this with patients because I actually had a patient interaction that, um, just by coincidence, actually, a lot of interesting coincidences in my life that it, that you can't see. But using that um, plant-based diet, she got better along with her daughter. And she pulled herself attention deficit disorder meds within 30 days, a 16-year-old did. And I started searching for references back in 2012, early 2012. And your book was one of the first ones I read. And you, you know, you um, referenced those uh, studies in India with the rats and, you know, giving the casein protein and it literally turning off and on the cancer. It just totally blew my mind. And so I want to say thank you for that. I mean, it just, it was like little lights are going off in many different parts of my brain. And then, you know, I went on to do the plant-based nutrition certificate and that again was very helpful. And so I, I really thank you for putting out that, those resources, especially at that time, it was, it's a little easier now maybe for physicians with the ACLM, you know, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, but then I didn't have a lot. It was in Western Colorado by myself and in, um, yeah, and I, I became kind of the maverick of, of my little area doing this. But I, I can't even imagine. I, I've received criticism just from my own colleagues. I can't even imagine on a national or international level how intense that must have been. I mean, how did you deal with that as, just as a person? I mean, I understand tough skin. I mean, you know, thick skin. But how do you deal with that mentally and emotionally? I mean, in your family? I just I, I can't fathom because you're doing the right thing. That's That's the part that really bothers me. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is a, a couple of individuals who've had influence on me in that regard. Uh, one is my wife, who we've been married for 55 years, but she started changing the diet. And, you know, with for their children, five grown children now. But uh, and it was it was good. You, you know, we could we could make the transition. It took us about 10 years to make the switch. But, uh, you know, I we, you just see people solving problems. So, you know, you're onto something. That's for sure. And the other thing was my father, who uh, he, he only had a couple of years of formal education. And I was the first to even go to college, let alone anything else. But he always was insistent on I was the oldest one in the family. And, and he was uh, interested in just for me to remember one thing. Always tell the truth, nothing but the truth, but on, on, yeah, all the truth. And 
So I, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, we're all products of our parents, and uh, in my case, I had a extraordinary. Well, my mother, and father, both, but uh, my my father was really insistent on you know keeping that you know to oneself, never never ever veer from that. So when the criticism came along, and you know, I had a choice maybe to make. Uh, for me, there's always one answer, and my wife thinks the same way. So we that that's what. You know, yeah, you pay prices. You pay you, you pay prices if, in fact, if you really want to get ahead and make a lot of money, or you know, get fame and fortune, uh, you can do it in many ways. You know, uh, right now, and uh, I, I, I I couldn't sleep that way. That's that, that's not a path. That's not a that's not a good path. So, yeah, I could tell you about a whole sort of uh, cascade. Of things like I, I don't know, setting up a, a big. Uh, it was I had the biggest department, I had the biggest program in our department at Cornell, and it was the number one department in the country. We were long ranked number one, so I, I had a perfect position, ideal position, and I really related to three successive Cornell presidents, one of whom really kind of helped to get the China study started in, in a sense. So I, I, everything was like being in heaven or something. You couldn't have a better job. And I, I thought it would be immune from that kind of criticism to some extent, but I wasn't. Um, and things like um, getting getting another grant. I had in mind to get another grant from after the China study. This is 1988, after the China study had been in existence for a while. You're not yet published, but people were getting to know it. And I applied for another grant, which is tough to get, but I applied for it, and it was not only approved, it was recommended for funding. It was $7 million. Uh, I wanted to organize a study in China involving 500,000 people. And it was, it was all being organized to advance this concept of everything working together, essentially. And uh, we were ready to move on that and already had bought, you know, uh, six minus 80 degree freezers for China. We'd moved down the line because we were told, you know, we're going to get the money. And when I went to pick up the check, we required two institutes to participate, the Cancer Institute and the Heart Institute. And uh, the Heart Institute took the lead, but the Cancer Institute, the funded all my research, they came to the meeting and laid a check for $700,000 on the table, you know, to kind of up front, to, um, I knew them, but the, another, there was another man there, a very significant man, and he, who came along and showed me a letter. And the letter said that all of our work in China was a fraud. And, that, um, and then it was signed, Friends of the Institute of Aging. This man was the director of the Institute of Aging. And so he sent this letter. He's what, what, no, how could I answer? What, why? And for me to answer this letter, I said, I can't answer the letter. You don't even have the names of the people there. Well, then with that move, then the director of the the institute, the Heart Institute, said, you know, we got a problem here. We we before I can approve you're getting the funding, we've got to think about this a little bit. Well, they continued to think about it, and I never got the money. Uh, that's one of the things, and. You know, it's things like that. The course I was teaching at Cornell to offer this at one point in time. You may have seen the film, Forks Over Knives. They didn't tell the whole story in there, but 
really in reality the department chair. I taught it, very popular course, a lot of students taking it. And one year I wanted to take off, it was the first year I wanted to go give some lectures on our China study. And um, you don't have to teach the courses every year. I was just taking a breather. And what happened was the director of the department jerked the course out of the catalog, in spite of its popularity. It turns out he, without my knowledge, so when I got back and get, tried to get it restored, I couldn't, even going all the way to the faculty senate, it wouldn't restore it. So I saw the, 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 um, the hand of power. I had, you know, this is real power. And he, of course, couldn't be restored, and they started making excuses. It sort of reminds me of what I'm looking at the Trump administration right now, I have to tell you. And not to get too deep into that, but uh, the, the issue is that um, it didn't get restored. He was the, at that time, the most influential, to my knowledge, the most influential consultant to the dairy industry in the world. He was also the director of the Dietary Guidelines Committee everybody hears about. He was the director of the Food and Nutrition Board to determine his nutrient recommendation. Very powerful. And so I'm sure, in fact, I was already alerted. He was getting criticism from colleagues, you know, who were looking out for the industry. Better shut that guy down. And um, so, but that, that turned out to be a bit of a blessing in disguise. I said, okay, forget it. Um, I took the material and put it into a private foundation. And then came back. In those days, it was kind of a, a risky thing to do, but I joined with the uh, partner. We partnered with the arm of Cornell that was just emerging at that time with online courses. It was kind of a fledgling deal. Fledgling deal. So let's get together. They were working out ways of, you know, a different way of offering that kind of course. And so we set it up, and we have that course that you've taken now, and we've had it for some years. The last I heard, I think we've had about 11,000 graduates. We, we want to, uh, I really want to get that into medical schools. You know, my daughter starts medical school this fall and um, she's following our footsteps. And, you know, you, you speak, to, she's going to Texas Tech in Lubbock, Texas. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. And uh, I'm hoping to infiltrate a little, <laughs> little bit and maybe go and talk to some of these students. But um, I literally brought this home overnight to my husband and three children who are now grown. Um, they were 13, 16, and 18 at the time. And we literally, I cleaned out everything in the refrigerator in the house in one night. <laughs> God, oh, wow. God bless them. My husband ended up losing 65 pounds. You know, of course, I my allergies went away. My thyroid has improved. I've been hypothyroid for 21 years. My doses did drop. I mean, there's just, you know, you hear these stories all the time, as do I. And um, I will tell you, Dr. Campbell, everyone I have spoken to regarding you, you, the, all everyone that I respect, they say you're a man of the highest integrity. So, you know, for me, I, I, I get really, um, I guess, maternal and <laughs> protecting, you know, it really frustrates me to hear someone who does the right thing, who's putting out this information that's life-saving, life-changing, um, and to be criticized. And um, it's all I can do sometimes not to, you know, especially online. I mean, I, some of the things that people have written, bloggers and stuff, and they don't even have the near the education that you do and the experience. That just, it blows my mind. Oh boy. Um, again, I could talk about that again forever. But, you know, you speak to um, bringing us into medical schools, which is really a real uh, interest of mine is bringing this to colleagues because um, <clears throat> I, I've worked with so many 
colleagues and even helping them transition their own diet, reversing diabetes, losing weight, you know, feeling better. And many of them are asking, well, how can I do this? And I help them do that, you know, how to bring it into a practice, how to do it in a busy family medicine practice and how to bill for this and make money and, you know, do it in a sustainable manner. And, but I'm curious, what do you see the, as the biggest obstacles of moving this forward? I mean, you know, I see that we're seeing some momentum, but I almost think that I'm sometimes in an echo chamber that I, I keep myself in a silo with people that think like I do, believe like I do, that I really, you know, I know there's more obstacles out there, but you've had such a wide experience. What do you feel we need to do either as a medical profession uh, or just as individuals that we can do to move this forward in a, in a more rapid pace? Because there's so many people, you know, that could be affected and we're, we're literally going to bankrupt our country if we haven't already. Yeah, it's a good question. Actually, it's uh, I think maybe it's probably my main question now. These last, oh, I'd say, gosh, it goes back 20, 30 years, but in the, especially in the last 10, 15 years or so, when since the China study came out. China study was published, as you know, in 2005. So what is this, 12 years later? Uh, and I've seen things happen there. You know, being out, I've, I've given lots of lectures. I've given, I, I don't know, at least 700, maybe 800 lectures, you know, here and abroad. And actually, including at least 150 uh, or 200 medical schools. And uh, so I, I've got a chance to speak to the community that I think needs this. And uh, and I also was in policy. I'm, I'm giving you a little background before I answer the question exactly. I was at, very deeply involved in uh, food and health policy development in this country and abroad. Uh, and that means I was on committees, you know, uh, National Academy committees or expert committees like that. And, and you know, I've given testimony on behalf of committees to congressional committees and stuff like that. So I, I, I really got a feel for the interface between science and government, for example. That's one piece of the puzzle. Um, also, I also have, excuse me, just for a second here, we've got a phone ringing. Okay, there it goes. So um, the, the other side of it is the industry. You know, I, I know the industry, I think, really quite well. Uh, and, and in fact, I understand them. Their, their, their idea is bottom line, let's face it. And, you know, and if they have shareholders and stuff like that, they're working for the shareholders. So industry does its thing, right? Government, um, which I've had a lot of experience with, they, they're the ones that put out the grand statements, you know, for everybody to hear what's the latest kind of thing. Dietary guidelines be an example or all, all these kind of things. I've certainly been there and done that. Um, in academia, uh, we are unfortunately captives. We've become captives to too much to corporate interest. Uh, and so the story is big. The question of what, what I mean to say is we see it as a personal level. We see it in our families. We see it amongst friends. You tell somebody about this, and they react sometimes very negatively, almost hostile. And uh, they never heard it before. That, in turn, was what generated for me the question you just asked. You were asking myself, how can you move this forward, you know, in the face of all of that? Uh, and uh, got some ideas. Um, I wrote, uh, there's a new our second edition of China study, by the way, it just came out in December. And in that, we added the new chapter. And you know how in the first the first uh, edition, I, I tried to sort of focus on a few industries that might be responsible 
for denying this information public, you know, like industry, like government, like big medicine, I think we called it, big science, you know, things like that. And uh, this second edition, I decided finally, I'm not going, there's another group I'm not going to leave out. It's called academia. And of all the different institutions in our society that essentially control knowledge, including the medical industry, if you will, all the institutions that control knowledge, I can understand, I can certainly understand industry. That's their bottom line from, let's face it. Um, science, uh, a lot of wonderful people in science, a lot of doing a lot of great things. I don't, I didn't want to criticize science, and that's my area. Uh, and I didn't think I wanted to do that, but then come to realize that the kind of science we practice is very reductionist. That's what makes money. We can come up with specific ideas, identify specific chemicals, a specific disease, this and that. Tremendous opportunity for making money in a free market system. Okay? And, and by the way, I, I am free market. I'm not speaking against it. But in any case, the, the whole idea of science being so reductionist then leads me to the other obvious connection. Medicine is reductionist. Medicine, the whole practice of medicine is reductionist in nature. The re medical research we do is reductionist in nature. So, um, and then government, that comes into play. And I've certainly been around that block for a lot. Uh, you got, in government, now work uh, arm in arm with industry. And it happens uh, both at the practical level when you're doing policies and stuff like this. You always have to be careful what you say so you don't offend some industry, essentially. But the other side of that equation is really difficult to fathom. And that is, uh, I could sit and talk to politicians, you know, at the congressional level, senators, congressmen, whatever. And, and they would sit there and be marvel. They would marvel at this, maybe. And really, wow, this is really interesting. So forth, so it's not, not a question they didn't believe it necessarily. But because they would listen, but then when they go back and sit in their desk, they could not take action because they're elected with big money. They control. The Citizens United uh, thing at the Supreme Court back in 2010, I think it is, enabled uh, big, uh, very rich organizations to fund the campaigns of politicians. So it's like my friend uh, Howard Lyman says, the, the cowboy the mad cowboy friend of mine, ex-farmer, he was a lobbyist, and he said, we have the best government that money can buy. So, you know, you, you look at all these different things, and, and I can come up with, let's call them excuses, okay? Um, and, and, and the one I, I, I cannot tolerate is my own system, academia. Because they are... They, we exist, academia exists in order to teach young people the truth, by the way, in case someone hadn't had forgotten that. Uh, we're also supposed to re represent as best we can the truth. And in research, we should be doing research to follow the truth. We don't do research just to try to prove some product is, it might be worth selling. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. And we're not supposed to be defending things in our dietary practices that are not right. So you kind of continue to have to, it's all about truth. And academia, unfortunately, has sold their soul to a great extent. And one, one indication of that is that in 
when I was in graduate school back in late 50s, uh, we assumed that all the professors, more or, more or less, had tenure, which is the instrument to protect people to say what they feel like they should say. And, and, uh, and now I want to tell you some figures that actually were published officially. In 1980, as some years later, 1980, uh, 70% of the faculty were tenured. Okay? In, in 2010, 30 years later, it was down to 30%. And I don't know what it is now. It's probably less than that. But what it, what it says is that only now a minority of faculty are protected with that thing called tenure. And, and that may not be of concern to a lot of faculty because they're not dealing with things that are not necessarily that contentious. In my area, I'm obviously running up against you know, the most powerful of all powerful institutions just about. And if I, if I, if I didn't speak out what I'm learning, um, anybody else who didn't have tenure, it's off. It's done. Done and gone. So um, I, I really do have a very strong, I think, understanding of this. I'm willing to defend it any place, you know, whether it's in a public, I do, in my public lectures, um, or any debates. If anybody wants to debate me, you know, from industry or government, I don't care who they are. And I've had a few. They don't want to do it anymore uh, because they're not right. And so now the question is, you know, okay, we know all this. You know, we've got a, there's a huge elephant in the room. We've got to deal with it. What do we do? Do we go from the top down or the bottom up? It, clearly, bottom up is the way to go. You know, with medical practitioners like yourself, uh, just like everyday families, uh, they can, you know, deal with it in various Sunday ways. I, I guess this is what you're going to be the only way. But here's the problem with that: you can't go from top down because I already was doing that, trying to do that, and it doesn't work. Uh, the the thing is that if you this is an ancient idea, go back to ancient Greece. You've heard the expression "knowledge is power." Very, that's a very sound idea. <laughs> it's been repeated many times. We do know it. Okay, so if knowledge gives rise to power, and power in turn then is able to generate money, that's what power means, basically. If, if they is able to generate money and get capital and, and become, you know, capital intensive, now they have money. It's a circular thing. Now they have the money. They can guarantee their power. They can protect their power. And they grow more power. And so what is the first thing they want to do to maintain power? They want to control knowledge. They want to control knowledge. And uh, one way to bet, one way they've worked on doing that is through universities. Another way is to control the kind of funding that NI spends on medicine and things like this. This brings me to my final comment, just to get to your question. I don't, you, I don't know whether you know this or not, but in the practice of medicine, I mean that. You, you folks, you're the ones that's out there with the public. You're on the front line, you know, delivering health information on a very personal level to individuals. Uh, there's not a medical school in the United States that really teaches nutrition. And if there is a, I mean, Tufts offers maybe 18, 20 lectures. That's nothing. In any case, the nutrition information they offer is, is uh, old-fashioned. It's, it's only to teach the status quo. It's not the real stuff. So medical schools are not teaching nutrition. So how are doctors to get to know? You have to learn on your own. And so 
then that's one question. The second the second illustration of the problem is with the National Institutes of Health, the biggest medical research agency in the world. They're, they're the ones who funded almost all my research, except for the American Cancer Society gave me some. All of my money was public money, by the way. I didn't take money from the corporate sector. So NIH is made up of 28 institutes. And I know that organization, they're very big and powerful. I've known it from the top down because on policy committees there, I was a consult, you know, reviewing grants, who gets grants and who doesn't, and I got a lot of funding myself. There's 28 institutes at NIH. There's not one for heart, one for cancer, one for this, one for that. You know there's not one called the Institute of Nutrition? Really? You know what, nutri you know what nutrition can do. Right, absolutely. Okay? You you weren't trained in nutrition as a physician, really. I doubt. No, if you not are, at all. so you weren't trained in nutrition. Number one. number two, uh, the research that you're relying on is produced by an organization that Lyndon Johnson knew well. This goes way back. Is owned by the pharmaceutical industry. Hmm. Every year they get the appropriation from Congress, and the Congress in turn is reflecting, you know, what the interest of the drug industry is. Right. And Johnson really let all hang out after he decided to leave the presidency and gave a famous speech one time that I read the account of. It's really amazing. He just told him point blank. He said, you know what the problem is? He said, you, 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 all the taxes you pay to the top 50 countries, companies or something like that, I forget the exact number, but if you just took the money you paid to the government in form of taxes, instead put it into a trust fund. Just put it in the trust fund where it's objective, you know, neutral. Could have all the money we would ever need to fund medical research in a very generous way forever, just on the interest. Wow. He said, "That's what. We, that's how we could solve this. We don't wouldn't have any more of these political discussions about how much the pharmaceutical company wants this, that, and that's something else." And and basically, that is the answer. But then he turned around and said, "None of you will do that. You know it, and I know it because you own NIH." I read that in 1969. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you see, that that just sort of fills in the gaps here. You know, NIH, largely constrained from the top down because they get appropriations every year. You know, right, right now, Trump is threatening to almost destroy the organization. He's going to cut it by 25%. But anyhow, that's his idea. So, we, we, we don't do the research the way it should be done. We, we don't, certainly don't do research in nutrition. Let's forget it. Doctors, we make sure that doctors don't know this, so we don't teach it. Keep them, you know, keep them oblivious or ignorant of this. And the third thing that happens, maybe the most important thing of all, is that there's about 130 medical specialties. You you live with one. You said you had, uh, you know, family medicine, I think you said, or yeah. something of that sort. Board certified family medicine, yeah. Yeah, so you've got these 130 medical specialties, and you know you you, you tell me I am you're more familiar than I am when when you're getting reimbursed or you have patients and stuff like that. You do have to record your your experience with patients, right? Right, and with CPT codes and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Right, CPT codes. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I'm talking about. None of those codes of all those codes, and there's now said to be about 130, I think. Mm -hmm. There's not one is called nutrition. Right. Wow. So for you to be able to counsel patients, mm -hmm. you're in your own way because you believe it, but mm -hmm. it takes more time, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. It takes more time. 
Are you getting paid for all that, all the teaching you do? No, you, you have to bill. What I've done is I bill to the diagnosis and then I bill time. I can, I can do time or I can do like complexity of the appointment. So that's what I've chosen is prior to what I'm doing now, I would bill to time. And, um, then what I would do, I also, to shorten my period of time, I actually started a lifestyle medicine clinic where I would do it after work (laughs) and bring people in. But I also created over time, just in my experience, and you know, I I worked for about a year with patients, figuring out what would work best. Like, how could I get patients to take this diet and stick with it? How how could I reverse diabetes with this without them falling off the wagon or if they were tired or they, you know, I, I, I found all the obstacles and my goal was to obliterate them. So I came up with my own like 30 page handout, what I would print off, through in the beginning of the day, I would look through my patients, see who would be <laughs> appropriate for that, print it off. I probably killed a thousand trees or so, and then would hand it to them and explain it and share my story. So I would lure them in with a story and use that information. But then I would bill according, like if they had the type two diabetes, you know, I would just say, you know, I, I talked for 20 minutes on this topic and they, they're, you know, and I would talk about, you know, how a whole food plant-based diet would help them and they're going to come back in two weeks or whatever. Um, cause I found that the registered dietitian where I was at that time were not helpful because they didn't understand what I was doing. And sometimes it actually got a little, um, you know, pretentious, <laughs> I would say. Um, and, uh, which was very frustrating cause I didn't understand because I was trying to help patients. Um, reverse disease. I mean, nobody ever taught me that in medicine. And you're so right. Medicine is very reductionist because when you're learning um, medicine, you are, you're learning about how this drug can affect this one little part of hypertension and fix that, but they don't, you know, and then there's all these side effects that you have to look at, you know, the side effects. I had a patient tell me today, the side effects of these medicines are worse than the disease that I have. I said, you're absolutely right. right. And so that's what I've had to do. Um, I guess, you know, I, I guess, you know, when I have worked with other physicians who have now encompassed this into their own practice and they share this information with other colleagues, they also feel that frustration. But, you know, it's funny when I took a year to work on this one physician, she had type two diabetes, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, overweight, young, young, um, early forties. And by the time I finally convinced her to do it, she was off of insulin in five days. She had been on for five years. And she goes, Lori, this is great. We should go to the top of the roofs and shout it out. I said, that's what I've been doing at you for five years. Why won't you listen? (laughs) Or a year. I said, you know, why did it take so long? I guess that is my frustration. I don't understand as a, as a, a doctor, if I'm presented evidence, even though it's anecdotal or, you know, like you're saying, you, I can't do necessarily a RCT on specific whatever for this disease. Look at the circumstantial evidence. If I can send someone to the, you know, to jail for life for, you know, prison on circumstantial evidence, why can't I make an assumption that this diet with all of these prevailing, the research that you've done and others, Dr. Esselstyn, and see it in the own clinical setting that this people reverse disease. Why can't why can't they just embrace it? I just don't understand. It's so frustrating. Well, everybody, we're all part of this grand big system, yeah. you know, within which we live, and so uh, you know these are you know difficult challenges for clear. It's very clear. Uh, but just to quickly summarize again, 
you know, to get to that big question in a sense. Yeah. So, uh, you know, controlling knowledge. If physicians are not going to be, and I, I always put them at the front of the line because they're the ones dealing directly with the public, and that's where they should be. But uh, the the idea that they're not getting training, the idea they're not getting research information, the idea they can't get even compensation, adequate compensation for this kind of practice, mm-hmm. you know, that just kills it. It kills it right there. And so, uh, and the public listen to physicians. Quite frankly, I think they listen to physicians, generally speaking, more than they do somebody like me with a PhD, <laughs> even though I might be teaching this stuff. Right. But in, in any case, that's another story. Um, the, the, the thing the public looks to the medical authorities, that's, that's one, one place. Of course, as you know and I know, in recent years, an awful lot of the information now comes from the television. Hmm. You know, and we're one of the only two countries in the world that actually allow advertising for drugs. Right. I'm sure you know that. Yes. And uh, in the area of uh, all these concocted, these concocted diet plans and this and that, forget it. I mean, it's it's crazy. So the question is, how do you, how do you move from here to there? And you know, I might, if you just got the time, just tell you a couple of things. First off, way back when, 1985-86, I was at Oxford University for a year. I wrote it. Uh, I was so upset at that time by the the hostility I was getting already at that time, and I decided to try to get into the libraries to see if I could learn something where this came from. And basically, I had two questions. One was, how long have we been really trying to understand nutrition? And the other was, what is cancer? Are my two areas? And and particularly, what is it? What's the relationship between nutrition and cancer? And the reason I was prompted to that was because I was on a National Academy committee in 1980 to 82. And we, we were the first ones to publish an institutional report that diet was related to cancer. It was the most sought-after report in the history of the National Academy of Science. It made a lot of news in those days. And, uh, and I was the target of a lot of it because uh, in my colleagues in nutrition, they said I had betrayed the society and they tried to throw me out of my – they actually petitioned to have me investigated and thrown out of the society – Right after they had, when they first learned this, two weeks before, I'd been just nominated by the executive committee to be their president. But once I, I you know, got myself in that jam. Um, and so, anyhow, I, I went to Oxford, and that was 82, and I went to Oxford in 85, 86. And I decided, to, I was working with my colleagues in Oxford on the China, you know, data on the China study, but I, I also decided to get into the libraries to see if I could learn something about the history of this. You know, basically asking, how, how did we get so stupid, <laughs> essentially? <laughs> you know, and how has nutrition ever been considered before? Eventually, I wrote a pretty lengthy paper um, in 86. I, I gave a short presentation at a history society meeting in science, but other than that, I didn't do it. Anyhow, I just dug it out recently. Now, with 30 years reflection, uh, what I wrote there, I, I'm so excited about because now I think I can add another wrinkle to the story, the story about why are we all so stupid? <laughs> and what we see in the past, and I found literature on this, really substantial literature, going back to the 1700s. Oh, wow. So I mean, have- I, looked at a, yeah, I looked at a proposal that was made in Middlesex Hospital, for example, in London, the big hospital at the time. Uh, this uh, one doctor, this is 1805. He made a proposal to do some do a study on women's breast cancer to see what effect the vegetable diet would have on them, and it was turned down. 
He went back a second time. He turned down again. I'll in, just tell you that much. In 1805. Yes. This is incredible. And so then, then I back through, through the 1800s, my story that I wrote is all about what, what happened to the storyline then in the 1800s. You know, it's nutrition, and, and others were quite excited about the possibility of nutrition. But all during 1800s, they used to have some reasonably live, uh, lively debates on this and stuff. But by the time 1900 rolled around, nutrition was dead in the water almost. Because the ones who took over that whole narrative was the surgeons in the 1800s. They believed that cancer was what they called it, a local disease. The opposing view, like on the ones on the side of nutrition, it was called a constitutional disease, the whole body somehow. And they had these beautiful debates. But the surgeon said, no, it's a local disease. That what that means, there's something very specific causes the cancer. And besides, when they get cancer, we'll just cut it out. See, that's the nature of the local theory of disease. But they eventually lost. And finally, along around the late, night, late 1800s, they were joined by two other groups. The radiologists, who, who discovered that a, a, you know a ray of radiation might do some damage, and uh, and then there also the chemotherapists. Mm. You know that's they're both focused on the same idea, the local theory of disease. You know we'll kill that thing, and uh, that's it. And then, so the American Cancer Society that started in 1913. Okay. And who started that? He had a very reputable reputation before that. After that. His name disappeared from the books. This is a remarkable man. He gave a talk in, in 1913 in Washington, D.C. called The Menace of Cancer. And one of his major recommendations right at the top was what we need to do is to study the effect of nutrition on cancer, 1913. Wow. Three years later, he's off to the board. Wow. So do we I have... Mean, is it, this is the story of monumental. It's a magnet. It's a it's a fantastic story. Wow! And so, all my history. I just recently, I showed this uh, paper to a friend of mine, an old friend of mine, who's the editor in chief of one of the major journals. And he, you know, he's been here like I have, he's almost my age. And he read this and all he keeps saying was fantastic, amazing. He said he couldn't believe that this was going on. And so he convinced me I should take that paper of mine and divide it up, make it little smaller chunks. And so I've done that. I've gotten two papers out of that. The first one just was published yesterday, day before yesterday. Oh, so we have access to and this? Yes. I, I uh, had to pay money for it, but uh, it's going to be open access. Oh, wow. The whole paper. Okay. And then the second paper, that, that basically is it's a very... It's kind of a restricted you know, story. It just have, has to do with this man who started the American Cancer Society. And then some more discussion about that. The second paper is going to be coming out next month. It's been accepted, too. Uh, and that has more to do with, okay, if we knew all this back in the 1800s, then how come we forgot it? How did, how did this get institutionalized in our big institutions like the American Cancer Society? Or the American Association for Cancer Research, for example, very powerful organizations. Or in Britain, you know, and so I, I'm in a second paper. I'm sort of talking about here. I just go through some discussions that were that I discovered, you know. And so all of a sudden, you can see what happened from the early beginning was a the history was evolving, and a paradigm was evolving. 
that was like a big tent over all of us and our thinking. And in that tent, there were two things that stood out. Number one was reductionism. That's the way we do things. We still do today. You know, the pharmaceutical company talk about targeted drug therapy. What nonsense. Precision medicine initiative is a little more complex, but the same thing. So that's one idea where we took the wrong path. The other idea that we did, not necessarily through the surgeons, but was to worship one nutrient, protein. And protein in those days was thought to be equivalent, synonymous with meat. You know, because it was animal protein. And they wanted to ignore plant protein. Finally, when plant protein, people came along and discovered plant protein. Oh, that's no good. That's low quality. <laughs> so, you know, we've, we've lived with this. We now we're living with this religion wow. of uh, animal food-based diet. And we're working with a reductionist solution to the problems we create. Right. In the meanwhile, you know, we, we, we basically uh, have pay huge amounts of our taxes, go to subsidize the production of foods for our children in the schools to keep them sick. Well, don't say, don't say it that way. They don't say it quite, quite like I do. But, you know, we, we, we pay these taxes and these subsidies and we, in order to save the dairy industry and save the meat industry and save it on, on and on. We, we actually let the drug people off the hook mm. by taking their profits overseas and sticking foreign banks. You know, so everything our, our system is doing is to feed the feed the devil. Hmm. Literally. And the time we got to we have to stop that. So I, I, for me, if there's a solution, first off, it's ground ground level what you're trying to do. Okay. But I think you should you should get compensated. You should be honored for what you do. You know, every everyone like you. That's that's one thing. I think the other thing is to deal with this question about knowledge because they said knowledge is power. And so the question is, who's controlling the knowledge? Mm. I have seen that firsthand. I know what that not who's controlling the knowledge. And now, even for my wanting to talk to senators or congressmen about this, or even big newspapers that are trying to do this lately, they don't want to hear this. It's very disruptive. Mm. Mm. So I, I don't know. <laughs> I agree. I went to uh, Congress. Well, I went to dc in february there's a group of physicians um they're called physicians working together who are trying to be a different have a different place at the table than the ama because the ama really doesn't represent the majority of physicians in the united states maybe 15 percent and it was really an interesting um, opportunity i met some amazing doctors who you know are questioning how we um, like the American Academy of Family Practice or, you know, the different boards and how they make money and recertification and just some other things and reimbursement and doctors and all this stuff. But what was interesting is we had three senators or congressmen, excuse me, come and speak to us. And one of the very first ones said, I'm going to have to tell you guys something you don't want to hear. But if you would Put the money that you spent on that plane ticket and have some type of fundraiser or donate it to your congressman or senator, then you're going to have an ear to listen to. So here he is speaking to us. You know, first of all, we're some physicians. We may have a little bit more money to give someone if they would, you know, instead of telling us, oh, we're basically pay us for our ear to listen. Why didn't say, you know what, here's a here's a group of people 
representing thousands of physicians who actually have the opportunity take the you know take us and lead us through this ginormous disaster. I don't know. I think the federal government's a disaster. I wasn't in the military. I, I have some experience in the government level, but I mean, it, here's an opportunity for someone to take us and say, yeah, I'm going to represent your cause or help you understand that instead just says, Oh, you know, give me more money. And it was really frustrating. Um, so I think you're, I think you're right. It has to start at a ground root level. I think we have to show the American people and take the blinders off for them. People like me and you and, you know, this next generation of kids who are coming through medical schools, I think it's imperative. Um, and I love the fact that the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is actually offering their first board certification this fall in lifestyle medicine. And so I, I will be taking that as well. And so, um, you know, I just, I would like to see a little bit more wind in our cells. And I'm, you know, any advice that you have for someone like me or even people who are listening who maybe not in the medical profession that they can do on their own is it, you know, because I think I think writing to Congress is a waste of time, honestly. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Um, yeah. Um, you know, there's I, I know the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I was one of their founders, actually. Uh, I'm not now a member because I couldn't quite agree with the way they're going, but, you know, I, I have to give credit. They're going in the right direction, okay? Uh, the problem, I, it, anymore, I I don't know. I, I, I can't sell myself out for anything. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just want the truth to be told. That's all. And whether people agree or not, that's their, that's their choice. I, I'm not a, I don't, I don't believe in dictatorships. Mm. You know, I don't believe in uh, institutional control. The less institutional control we have, the better. And so I'm that, of that background. But um, there are some organizations wanting to take a step in the right direction. And they are. They are. Uh, but uh, they, they sort of still come up short because they're, they're concerned about being able to reach the public in a way which they could gain more people to listen to them. And I can understand that. I mean, I was part of that game, too, you know, and, and the policies we did. So, uh, and, and uh, in medicine, you know, you can tell people to eat your vegetables or, you know, increase your vegetable uh, from five, day, five a day to nine a day or something like that. You, you can sort of say these kind of things. That sounds right. I mean, they are. It's, it's, it's a right direction. Uh, or, you know, try to get away from drugs. Don't use drugs quite as much as, you know, try something else. You know, we say these things. A lot of people, and that's all I want, I want to emphasize. That's a plus. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think at the same time, since we now know, the partial steps don't get us there. And now we're facing some really serious crises in the world. One of which is cost, cost of health care. I'm sure you've heard about that one. Uh, and, you know, in that debate, they don't talk about solving, you know, making people... Reducing costs by making people well. Uh, also, there's the issue concerning the environment. That's a big issue. And so I, I think there needs to be a voice someplace that just says it, tries to say it as clearly as one can. Here's the evidence. Because I say this kind of thing now, the biggest story about this kind of whole food plant-based diet in my mind, it's not about preventing future problems. That's called preventive medicine. You know, preventive medicine doesn't get much recognition in the medical profession, quite frankly. Um, uh, so uh, I, I think 
we, we just the, the biggest story. I forgot what I was going to say. The biggest story about this is uh, is the effect that this diet has on actually treating patients. It's not about prevention, but treatment. Now, now we're talking about something a real. Uh, um, we're going right to the core of things. Did you know the medical profession is all about treatment? Okay, pretty much. And uh, I'm, I'm saying the biggest thing that can be done in the in the in the clinic when when physicians are treating people is to tell them about diet. When you agree, I, absolutely. I I, <laughs> I know drugs, I know there's some stuff like that, pills and procedures. They they work in a lot of cases, but you know, absolutely, one hundred percent. And you know, I I had an interesting five and a half years. So I transitioned my diet overnight. <laughs> um, dealt with that with the family. And then I transitioned jobs actually to where I could work and do a lifestyle clinic. And then I worked where I could work with um, organizations and, you know, work comp insurance and helping, you know, employers become healthier. What was interesting though, um, I had an opportunity to come in to Florida and actually work in with, um, a place that we actually bring people in who have chronic disease. We're using a plant-based diet now and not only treat them medically with the, the diet, um, whole food plant-based diet, but also the mental side of things. So we're, we're taking on the psychology of, you know, food addiction and binge eating, but at the same time, the food is allowing themselves to heal. And we, we opened January 9th. We're having tremendous success and, um, it's a lot of fun. It's, um, very rewarding work and to have people, you know, for example, and a great one that we even, we ignore is the depression that occurs in the United States, you know, mental health and the rise of, of the issues of anxiety and depression. And, you know, we, I had someone who's been on, you know, two drugs for depression and anxiety for 30 years, come wean them off over the course of three to four months. And they're doing fabulous, you know, to hear people say, Oh, I actually, a fantastic story. Yeah, I mean, oh, there's so many, and you know, coming off diabetes meds within you know days as they've been on it for years, and stopping insulin, and the weight loss, and the headaches are gone. You know, the whole thing that we all hear. You know, skin's clearing up from psoriasis, rheumatoid arthritis, and you know, all of these wonderful things. And it, it's it's a it's a it's an incredible opportunity, and it's just been so much fun. It's like you know a perfect setting for me and I love it. And so for me, I feel compelled to, that's why I started the podcast, you know, started back in October because we have, to, I have to feel like I have to speak to these, for, talk to you and talk to patients. So I've interviewed people who've lost 250 pounds doing this. And, you know, you know, I, I spoke to Dr. Ron Weiss on um, earlier this week and he spoke about how his father, you know, back in 1990s, um, went to a plant-based diet with, you know, advanced uh, pancreatic cancer and had 50% reduction of tumors and his doctor just blew it off <laughs> and he lived 18 months instead of two weeks. And I just, I guess that's the part I'm just really struggling with is, you know, we hear people like I have, for example, I have, I'm, I'm very active on social media and we have, I have access to, there's one group, there's 60,000 female physicians in one group. And then I'm, another one, there's like 1200. And I posted the question, you know, I, I had an article like using plant-based diet, um, uh, in healthcare and in the setting of, in a, a practice setting. And I was garnering some opinions just because I can kind of gauge what they, what they're thinking. And one of them said, um, well, you know, I do, 
I did the uh, ketogenic type diet. I lost, you know, significant amount of weight. I, my cholesterol is better. My prediabetes is better and I feel great. So, you know, I have had these conversations multiple times. Do you have, do you have any suggestions for our listeners? Because that's going to be the big thing, the ketogenic diet, the paleo diet, blah, 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 on and on. What would you, do you have any little spiels or something that they can say to these T people and say, you know, listen, this longevity is not on your side. There's no population that's ever lived long <laughs> that ate a, a primarily animal protein type diet. I mean, what, what would you say to those people? There, there's one idea. I, I, the first thing is uh, point out that uh, all these words you just mentioned, Atkins diet, paleo diet, ketogenic diet. Uh, what's the other one though? South Beach diet, yeah. protein power diet, uh, blood type diet, you know, on and on, the zone diet, right. you know, all, all of these crazy things are, that, that are out there. Uh, and they basically all are blaming uh, the health problems on our high consumption of carbohydrates. Right. So they tend to fall under that category called low-carb diets. And uh, that, I have to tell you, is a ruse because um, – if they, and this was started in 1973 by Robert Atkins, mm-hmm. and then Atkins like followers ever since. And what, what they were up to at the time, they had a couple of things on their mind, and a lot of them since. And that was that uh, in 1973, you see, it was just about that time that some of these, uh, the McGovern Committee came out with the dietary guidelines on right. heart disease. In 1982 was the National Academy report on cancer. That was the one I was on. And so, and then there was the Surgeon General report, and you know, on and on. There was over a period of about 15, 20 years, there were a lot of these reports coming out saying things like, eat more vegetables, cut down the fat intake, right? That was a partial story. But for those days, it was very provocative, I have to tell you. But still, it was really kind of a partial story. So people like Atkins and others and the industry didn't like that because we're talking all of a sudden about plants, right? Well, they tried to come up with some clever ideas to argue against that. And the best idea they came up with, in their view, was to say, oh, you know, all the problems we have is because of high carbohydrate consumption. Mm. If they had specified that what they're talking about is sugar Mm. and too much white flour, too much sugar, okay, we could have found some common ground. That was not their motivation. Their motivation was if you can cut down fat, I mean carbohydrate, down to 15, 20% of total calories, then the other 80 to 85% has to be fat and protein. This was a ruse for uh, defending the animal foods industry. So when people talk to you about all those diets, uh, it's true. We know that you can go into an Atkins type diet, people will lose, if they've got weight to lose, they'll lose weight initially. That's pretty much a given. You know, total cholesterol will drop a bit. Uh, You know, they might feel a little better because they're eating a lot less calories for starters. That's always worth worth something. Uh, but it doesn't last. Mm-hmm. It doesn't last. No. So if you look, that's the short-term thing. And, and a lot of people eventually go off it because they don't get the results they think they're going to get. But anyhow, let's say in the short term, they might see what looks like good. And it convinces them right. But just show them the long-term data. The long-term data show very clearly that the higher the consumption of fat and protein, especially animal protein, all the diseases increase. Mm-hmm. And it's relationship is from zero uppers and so they need to they need to be called to on they may need to be put on the carpet mm-hmm. for and i that's only a couple of debates i've had 
on Larry King's show, and I couldn't get my point across very good because of all the interruptions. But that, that's what they're doing. So um, I don't know whether that, you know, if I tell that to, to groups who are not physicians, not in science, and they kind of believe in this, I say that, they, they do put a frown on their head. Not necessarily they believe it, but they, oh, I never heard that before. Hmm. You know, kind of. And uh, so if they're reminded of the fact that, that those diets are all for the protection of the existing system. Hmm. And like my friend John McDougal likes to say, people like to get, hear good things about their bad habits. <laughs> so all these books, they keep coming out. And I keep getting barraged with these clowns. Uh, but they'll, they'll, they'll come out another one. But I got one on the desk right now. I should show you. See, I just got this. It says Plant Paradox. I've, I don't. I don't know. I have. I have my, this guy is. He, is that, is now, that the cardiologist? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I, th- I think I've seen that one actually. Well, I have right. I don't need to read but more than a paragraph or two because I see what they're up to with all their stupid code words. But basically, he's it's a glorified low low um, gluten free diet. Now he's talking about oh, it's not just gluten, which is uh, grossly exaggerated. That was the wheat belly diet. That was all exaggerated. So now they're saying, oh, okay, maybe it's not just gluten. All plants have these lectins, these kind of uh, chemicals. We shouldn't eat them. That's what this guy is trying to say. So I said, I'm not going to read anymore. (laughs) You know, it's ridiculous. I I just don't understand. How are these people? I mean, they just don't have a conscience. I, I, I liken them to... They should be, I mean, medical malpractice. I mean, to tell people to eat things that they know are going to kill them, it just mm, blows my mind. Right. <laughs> right, right. I don't know. That goes back to the question concerning controlling knowledge. And so right. we just got to be better than they are. We got to find out ways to do that. Right. One, one thing I, I tell you, uh, yeah, I've got to run here shortly. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I just want to leave you with one thing. Uh, it's my two sons. You're talking about, and, and we've been talking about it as a family and all that, you know, how do, how do you get this forward? Well, I've got a couple of sons are doing some stuff right now, and I, I have to say that, plus our, our online course. Right. Our online course is uh, the number one course out of the 200 some at Cornell right now, by the way. Okay. Uh, we, we want to expand that and make it even much better. But anyhow, that's been quite a success. That addresses the educational part. And uh, I want to also address the research part. And so our son, who co-authored the book with me, Tom, Wilson got his medical degree. He finished up uh, his residency at the University of Rochester Medical Center. And then it was no less than the CEO who uh, recruited him to come back and organize a new program called Nutrition in Medicine. This is the first program of this kind, I think, focused on plant-based nutrition in a major medical school. Wow. And so he's been thinking about a lot of things you're thinking about. Mm-hmm. He has little patient groups and he has a um, summer thing and we're just now starting our first conference at the Center for Nutrition Studies. So he's going to take care of the research thing. We only got enough money. I found enough money for him to start out the study of all time. Treating cancer patients with diet, with a whole food plant-based diet. It's never been done. And that's a real steep uphill battle. So I got enough money for him to do his first, uh, his first pilot study okay. so on women with uh, metastatic breast cancer. Oh, wow. Pretty, pretty tough group, you know, in terms of their risk. So he's going to take care of research end of things. 
So we got our education covered, we got our research in one more piece is a three-legged stool. It's, it's what land-grant universities around the country have used for 100 years. It's called extension. Hmm. And so the word extension in, in every state means cooperative extension, maybe. You might have heard of that. Mm-hmm. You know, state universities send out agents and stuff to help people how to farm and so forth and so on, food. Um, anyhow, our third leg is my oldest son, who was trained. He, he had his degrees in... Uh, government and uh, economics at Cornell. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who directed the new film called Plant Pure Nation. Yep. Nelson. Yep. Have you, have you heard of him, met him yet? I have. I met Nelson on the cruise ship um, that we met in 2015 and actually saw the very first time it was ever first shown. One. That's right. It was the very first one. Yeah. Well, in any case, what he's got going now is really starting to take off, I think. We're keeping our fingers crossed. Yeah. He's got a line that actually uh, is online. Uh-huh. It's and, and Amazon has just taken it off. Oh, wow. So he's got a big partner uh, and possibly others, uh, another really big food company in the country. So we'll have, you know, we want to, and it's food that's made affordable. Wow. It's twice as much uh, food actually as Amy's has. Okay. For about half the price. Oh, and, wow. and it's healthy. So I want to just say that. And then he's got something like 450, I think, or something like that, of pods. Mm-hmm. You may have heard about the pods. Yep. They haven't taken off yet. They're, you know, they're struggling for their existence. But he has a plan. He gets the revenue from the business side, making money on the things, and then provides that to help support the pods. Right. So thinking about how do you make this financially stable? And, of course, he has another film he's going to be doing. So that's all the outreach, you know. So anyhow, those two guys are doing their thing. And when we put it all together with our center, uh, we're excited about it. Wow. And if you want to have someone else on your program, yeah. uh, either one of them. Nelson? Uh, Tom. Yeah, Nelson is the one who does, um, he does the Plant Pure Nation thing. Uh, he's a pretty good speaker, and he, he talks all about the that, that side of things. Okay. Um, and Tom, he, he gives a lot of talks now, too. He's, uh, you know, in the same area I do. Okay. They'd be and okay with he, me. I, I would be I would be honored to have them. Are you kidding? This is great. I'm going to tell them yeah, that you, were, you, you tell them you told me to call them or email. Yeah, well, <laughs> I you know it sounds a bit like self-promotion, but I've gotten past that. I don't care what people want to call self-promotion. I think that they're doing a really good job. So Absolutely. Uh, you should definitely be proud of those. And uh, I think that's fabulous. And I'll put links to everything here that you had mentioned about PumpYourNation.com. Yes. And, yes. Yeah, I actually was interviewed by Lee Fulkerson um, a few years ago about what I was doing in Colorado on his podcast. So that was really fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And John Corey, the producer of Four Seven Eyes, is the guy who is also the producer of Plant Your Nation. Okay. Working with Okay. Same guy. Cool. Very cool. Okay. Point me or got to run. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Campbell. I appreciate you so much. And uh, you have a great evening. Great. Well, thank you.